Episode 111, dated Saturday the 27th of June 2009, Lee Alexander and Women in Video Games. You're listening to Digital Cowboys. News, reviews, discussions and uncensored opinions on the world of video games. You're a game company. That's why you make Mario. So if they carry on making a new Mario game, a new Zelda game, the stuff that we've come to rely on, that's all well and good. But the one thing they forgot to show in this conference was anything for that demographic. Move to the next section, you shoot all the guys there, you move to the next section. What other shooter doesn't do this? But it's what they do with the AI to make those shooting sections interesting. I mean, One of the achievements is play it for more than 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) When we do an imitation of a Ponzi Brit, do we sound as bad? Yes. Yes. I am actually sitting here drinking tea as we're doing this podcast. Is there a trend in the industry you wish you could do away with? Activision. (laughs) I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Tony Atkins. Welcome to the Digital Cowboy, Never a treat, never surrender. This week we have Lee Alexander, news director at industry trade site Gama Sutra and author of the sexy video game land blog which aims to engage the community on a wide range of progressive and fun topics. Her monthly column at Kotaku deals with social and cultural issues surrounding games and gamers and she's done articles and reviews at Slate, Variety, Wired and a variety of other publications. Lee, thanks for coming on the show and how are you doing? Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm well, thanks. We're talking about women in video games, how women are portrayed in games, and how games are marketed to women. Lee is short on time, so we're going to launch right into it, and we'll be back with our regular stuff straight afterwards. So, how do game developers see women as a market? How do they see women as a market? Well, based on my experience, and to caveat that, my experience, um, I'm as a journalist, I'm exposed primarily to marketers, unfortunately. Um, I do talk to plenty of developers, but that is, I would say, only 40% of the time as opposed to being presented with the PR message about 60% of the time. That's sort of the nature of our beast. Um, so I would say that primarily women are considered uh, lumped in with the casual segment right now. Um, I think mm-hmm. there's... You know, while there's, I think, a lot of effort to make hardcore titles a bit more progressive and female friendly, the primary efforts to market to women are, are, are concentrated on emerging audiences and, uh, and, and women are still considered an, a novelty demographic or a new demographic. Moving on from that and now going into the more personal ideas from you, wh- how would you change that on a personal level? If you could just go in there and mix stuff up, what would you start doing to target women? Well, um, I think it should be noted that I, I don't really represent the average female video game consumer. That you know, much a, is definitely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm a journalist, firstly, so you know my occupation is is to play a lot of games, and my occupation is to try to empathize with an audience that's majority male. Mm. Um, and and I have never really had traditional female gaming preferences. Anyway, I like to shoot things and and things that women are not generally assumed to enjoy doing, whether that's true or not. Bearing in mind that I personally am not necessarily the the common demographic. What I would do to make things a bit more appealing to more women is if you look at the other kind of media that women in general seem to get attracted to on all levels, whether that's for pop culture entertainment or, or for serious entertainment, I think, and again, I'm speaking, I, I have to put all these disclaimers on that I'm speaking completely <laughs> in general, because <laughs> yeah, I, I, I tend to dislike the idea anyway that there's some idea, the concept that all women sort of share a common set of values. I mean, hell but, no. Yeah, yeah, okay. Disclaimers aside, I think in general, uh, women are interested more perhaps than men are in, uh, 
interaction more than action, whereas men, I think, tend to like more overt or more frank um, interplay between objects and people. Women are interested in subtext and subtleties. Um, I say that because, you know, based on looking at differences in the way men and women approach, say, romantic relationships, uh, you know, women have a hard time understanding that men are very what you see is what you get because they're, they're constantly trying to read into anything. I think it's safe to say that that's something women enjoy uh, a bit more. Uh, so I think one way to make games friendlier and more appealing to female audiences is to concentrate on more subtext and provide more in-depth relationships. Um, that's not necessarily even of a romantic variety, but you know, women are shown to be attracted. You know, the reason that women are such a strong segment of the casual gaming audience is, is because they, they tend to like puzzle gameplay or, you know, puzzle, you know, majority of these casual puzzles are, are, in, are seeing a female audience. So I think if women have the opportunity to think critically about subtext of the objects and people with which they're presented in games, it could help, help make it more, more female friendly. Well, so taking all that into account, how do you feel how Nintendo has broken down the barriers in the last couple of years over what I would call the previous attempts from and from Sony in particular with like the pink PSP and the stuff like to a point Nintendo was doing that for many years with you know the color schemes but how do you feel like Nintendo with their easier control systems and and games such on the DS aimed at specifically at a female audience is doing I have I have kind of a complex answer to that, so I hope you'll you'll tolerate me going Thank on at length, Go for it. <laughs> at length just a little bit. Um, I, I've never been of the mindset that there's anything wrong with girls liking pink. Um, you know, that's what little girls are drawn. You know, and to some extent, that's a function of, of consumer culture and society. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. but to some extent, I think when children are young, they're still feeling out what gender roles may mean and attracting themselves to things like pink or or princesses or or cartoons for girls versus robot. You know, dolls for girls versus robots for boys um, is maybe part of healthy childhood play and not something that necessarily needs to be a permanent determinant of their gender identity for the rest of their lives. So mm-hmm. that being said, I I have never felt that there is any need any problem with marketing for things that are overtly feminine sensibilities because that's one of just you know many options that are out there and you know as a woman while I don't I obviously don't don't prefer you know I I obviously dislike sexism and I don't like the assumption that I must always be girly but at the same time, I, I want to feel entitled to enjoy girly things without feeling like it compromises me as an intellectual. So, so you know, when DS came out, I wanted a pink one. I couldn't find one, you know. So, <laughs> so you know, to some extent, I think that the tendency to to make Hannah Mon- pink Hannah Montana games for girls is unfairly scorned because that's a, that's what a lot of little girls want, and I think that yeah. can be okay. Um, but as far as Nintendo's initiatives to sort of broaden market accessibility, I think that that hasn't been a function of them succeeding with a particular gender so much as that has been Nintendo succeeding with people who lack experiences um, in, with games in general. There are a lot of um, hallmarks to the to hallmarks about the core gaming segment that have traditionally alienated women. Um, it's for the same reason people wonder why more women don't pursue math and science. Is there a, a biochemical difference? Are their brains different? You know, we don't know. Um, but it, what is likely is that there's a social stigma and not something wrong with math and science or not something unfeminine about math and science. I think that, you know, early social sick stigma since before I was born has dictated that certain pursuits are masculine. Ergo, they've developed a primarily masculine audience. Um, and then I, as a little girl growing up, 
sees that it's mostly males participating in this activity, and therefore I receive the impression that it's not for me. So I think that there's been more of a chain effect with women believing that games are not for them. Um, I'm, I would never claim that game, gaming is as women-friendly as it needs to be, and I would never claim that, that there's an absence of sexism or boys' club to it, um, because that, that is certainly part of it. But women have caught on to games in much fewer numbers than men, I think because it is already male-dominated and, and they feel they have trouble identifying themselves that way and they have trouble being attracted to it. Um, so what Nintendo has done uh, with advanced control schemes is that they've made games friendlier to people, regardless of gender, who've never tried games before. Um, and I think that that makes it seem more approachable to women, that it is that Nintendo has made it a genderless pursuit, not that Nintendo has successfully targeted females. I guess that question was really the fact that um, the female demographic, let's say, has been less into games. So there's the fact that Nintendo made it easier to get into games. Of course, you're going to see a bigger group of you know, female gamers jump onto that rather than you know, the male gamers that haven't been there before. Which leads Absolutely. nicely to our second question, I think. Yeah. Right. Question two. What, by the way, we do talk on this show sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Is it fair to say that both sexes get a raw deal when it comes to in-game representation? Absolutely. That's the short answer, yes. Uh, long answer? Uh, okay. Uh, the long uh, answer is... Let's get more of a dialogue going back. Okay, right. Um, I'll give you a mid-length answer if you like, if you want to... Well, no, I mean, Alex, you have a complete opinion on this. You shared this with me earlier. So how do you feel that this is the case? Right. From the very beginning, video games have, have had women in them. They just haven't really been in the forefront. They've, they've been kind of, you know, Ms. Pac-Man or just sort of thrown in there. Or usually, you know, by the mid-80s, they were sort of being thrown in as an extra character. You could also choose if you wanted someone faster but slightly weaker. Object, and, not subject, yeah. Yes, precisely. And there was very little characterization in those games. And they kind of came to a head in 1996 with Lara Croft. One of the things for me that I think kind of was one of the major contributors was because of the move to t- from 2D to 3D, the main character had to be followed around from behind for hours and hours and hours. And the popularity of Lara Croft may just have had, had uh, developers thinking, well, hang on a second. What, you know, might what, as well make it good to look well, at. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's horribly crass and shallow to say, but, but let's face it, I mean, most guys, when they're playing a game for, for 10 hours, when given the choice of an attractive woman or a, a guy's ass to stare at, would probably go with the attractive woman, especially around that time when it was fresh and new. These days, Laura Cross has been around for fucking years and really hasn't come on that far. Sure. Now, I think also, too, that's why many men choose to play women in WoW. They say, you know, oh, I'm so progressive and, and gender neutral. I'm playing a female character. It's like, no, nah, you just want to watch the night elf, Jaime. Yeah. <laughs> and that then leads to many awkward conversations in pubs anyway. <laughs> um, I think the main thing that sort of holds everything back is that when when guys are represented in stories, you'd, you'd say that um, women in games tend to be sort of fairly shallow depictions of women so they've got big tits and guns but the guys are chris redfield they're Mm -hmm. lumbering homunculus mongoloids with you know stubbly chins i'm thinking marcus phoenix Phoenix, they're incredible they've got voices like this all the time max Payne, i am so fucking sick to death of playing these he-men and it comes down to bad writing 
It's it's very simple. This is something that uh, I'm, have you watched Daniel Floyd stuff on uh, on YouTube? Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a pal of mine. I'm actually working on a project with him. Yeah, he's been on the show several times. He's awesome. Um, but yeah, it, he he highlights the point of uh, bad writing on several of his um, his presentations. Sure and it is absolute. I think he's got a woman one coming up here. So let's get some stuff in quickly because I think his is out on Friday, which will be a day before this one comes out. So we record it before you release it, Dan. Okay. Um, but yeah, okay. Bad writing is bad writing. A badly written woman is going to be just as shallow and stupid as a badly written man. And ultimately, the best games with the best female characters in them tend to also have the best male characters in them. And I don't think I'm going to get many arguments out of you when I say Metal Gear Solid is one of my... Yeah, Metal Gear Solid and Silent Hill has has fair representations. I haven't played Silent Hill 3, but yeah. uh, Silent Hill 2, Maria actually was actually a really good character. I don't remember. Yeah, and and her sexuality had a function. It had had a symbolical and, and, and narrative function for her to be... Be over-sexualized. Yeah, some of the actual best games actually make it. Yeah, as you say, totally functional that a woman happens to be that character in the story. Some of them, on the other hand, like Mass Effect, it's entirely incidental. Oh, oh hang on, did you, did you just go ugh? Yeah. About Mass Effect. I'm, I'm, like, I'm not fond of Mass Effect. Okay, well, <laughs> why not? No, 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 let me just get to no, the we'll, end of this we'll, thought. We'll get off the topic. Let, it, let, let him finish this. Hang on, it's incidental that your character of Shepard is a woman. I think that my my Shepard is one of the best females I've ever played in the game because she's as deeply scarred as any other guy who would have been playing it in the same And, and, and you're electing that. You're not being, you're not being narrated to. You're electing yeah, no. your uh, and, Shepard. Yeah, absolutely. I defined who Shepard was, and it worked. And the fact that she was a woman was incidental, but at the same time, she was the same woman. It doesn't work every time, but sometimes that does work. So... Go for it. What were you going to say about Mass Effect? Um, oh, my answer about yeah, my answer as to why I, I don't like Mass Effect is 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 related to ideas of of poor narrative and authorship, but it's it's not on the, Whoa, the topic. Whoa, poor Mass Effect. This could go on for a while. Let's yeah. not get into that. This, this <laughs> is a, this is a this is a future podcast. Um, yeah, 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 excellent. But uh, in in response to what you've just said, I, I completely agree with with uh, the majority of the points that you've made. Yeah. Um, that first of all that that. I think it's a it's an equal opportunity. There's an equal opportunity offense about gender portrayal in games. That's why, you know, I, I actually take a lot of flack from the feminist community because I'm so hesitant to call um, sexism in games as, as purely something that victimizes women. Um, hmm. You know, I I wonder what it would be like to be playing these games as a man and to constantly be this these these very typified and unrealistic hero characters. Right. Um, you know, with this giant. I'm sure that most male gamers do not have biceps like the majority of their in-game avatars. So you know, I, I I'm I'm assuming that males don't feel like they're being fairly represented in games either. Um, so again, though, it's a fantasy. And I think that that is all right. Um, when I play Tomb Raider or, or any game that has a, a big boob girl in it, um, I don't consider it a reflection on me. Uh, I don't. I don't necessarily. You know, when I'm playing Soul Calibur. I, I don't feel like I need to be represented by my avatar in Soul, Cal- Soul Calibur. Um, the fact that games are not fair representations of their players, or you know, even ideal, even gently idealized representations, um, I think is is harmful to. You know their potential for depth and, and good narrative, um, but I don't find it offensive per se because it's equal opportunity in these sort of Dungeons and Dragons sci-fi, you know, comic bookish fantasies that we're presented with. And and in a nutshell, that's why I have a problem with Mass Effect, the uh, the, the generic source material that you know sort of isn't bringing anything new. Um, I digress. Whoa, um, <laughs> that is a can of worms. That <laughs> I digress. Um, I think that one of the reasons that we're that we're having this problem again and again with game characters is 
um, because games are so much about power fantasies, um, which it doesn't necessarily need to be a problem. Um, but men and women are, you know, by social standards, powerful in different ways. Men tend to be considered powerful because of strength. Women are considered powerful because of their sexuality. Um, if you think, for example, why are men afraid of women? Well, because they're they're in because of their sexual power, and and vice versa. I think so. You know, women. A, a woman's power is maybe looks in, in, in a 3D model more exploitive than maybe a man's. When he's got big guns, the woman's going to have big breasts, you know. So, you know, we're, we're very primal here. We're, we're still being cavemen when we're representing characters in games. Um, but isn't it to be fair that, you know, games in the past, but for a lot of the time, has been kind of aimed between a, a male demographic of people. Uh, and on top of that, games are being developed by we would say a, a large group of males. I mean, there's, there is females slowly coming into the industry and, and changing that. I mean, um, Uncharted, was it Amy, Amy Henning? Yeah. Um, she's done some fantastic work on that and there's, it's, and it shows because the, the women or the female characters in, in that game are very, very well rounded. It's, it's not surprised that, you know, <laughs> we're having trouble kind of formulating what a female should be in these games because the, the industry for so long has been just absolutely dominated by male programmers. Right, exactly. I think I think that's actually the the biggest factor is that we have a uh, a homogeny of perspectives um you know among our creatives. The best the, you know the best game designers are people who have interest in other media. Like if you look at the team behind Portal, they're people who would be writers anyway, you know, in some other medium if not in games. If if you look at someone like Fumito Ueda, you know, he is like he you know he studied, you know, art and composition and and things like that. You know, he he these are people who don't need to be game designers, they're choosing to be. Um but the vast majority of game designers who are producing the vast majority of content are, you know, Rep- are, are pretty much the same kind of people who are who are represented in that core market. You know, you've got your male of a certain age range who has grown up with a certain type of hobby and pursuit. So there's, there, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that per se, but there is when there's such a lack of diversity. And I think that that is probably the main main factor that is the problem here. We don't, we're not having any new ideas. We're talking about stereotypes in this particular one, so let's just journey into that particular shady corner. Why are men fascinated by girl gamers? And that, um, this is once again just it's saying men as a stereotype and girl gamers as a stereotype. Well, I think because there there has been so, the internet's a big reason. Um, the internet is a big big echo chamber that allows people to refine and amplify what might otherwise be minor opinions. When you see an entire two hundred post count forum thread of people expressing something, you're more inclined to be aware of having the same opinion yourself. It probably subjectively magnifies it. So if one or two people start dumping dumping on, on a few key incidences, there can be the perception of a stereotype. Um, I think that probably this, I mean, there, there's definitely like the girl gamer slash, you know, nerdcore stereotype of, 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 of girls who maybe put on an Xbox head, headset to look sexy or, or something like that. Um, when the internet was um, still fairly new as a social phenomenon, now there's a lot of people who have a strong social life online. Um, but when that was new, uh, men were the early adopters, and, and women came to it a little bit uh, a little bit later. Um, so, young girls who want to get on the on the internet with other young men um, would look around and not really see an in. I think that almost aggressively penetrating the game space became a way for you know girls to get attention. Um, it's fair that the audience interpreted that as attention whoring and, and became hostile towards it. Um, 
you know, but at the same time, it's a lose-lose proposition for girls. If, if, if they're hostile towards games, men don't like them. And if they throw themselves into it full stop, men don't like them because they feel that it's disingenuous. Um, I think at the core of the hatred of girl gamers is that men feel they're being manipulated. Um, it's the same reason that maybe men like to have guys night with their sports buddies and they don't like when the girlfriends come and try to act like, you know, drink Bud Light and cheer too. Like it, it has, it was a pursuit in which they felt comfortable having boys night. And then all of a sudden here's these women who want to be a part of it too. I think men feel threatened. Um, really? I see from our points of view, Tony, I don't know about you, but just having, you know, Liz and Ace and all the other girls that we actually know, there aren't many, but those that we do know, they, they get a hell of a lot of respect from um, most of the other guys that we play with. Yeah? Absolutely. Yeah. And, well, I, I was speaking in, in the stereotype. There is the stereotype of the, you know, the, the frag doll type, you know, sexualized girl gamer and the stereotype of the sort of closeted nerd that hates them. Um, in, 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 in more nuanced strokes, absolutely. I receive a lot of, a lot of respect and interest from my male peers. And, and, you know, I've, the more prolific my work is, the more irrational sexism I endure. But by and large, there's a lot of respect and, and curiosity from, from my audience about what, what women like me can bring to the table. Um, so, you know, most people, I think the majority of rational people are of the same mindset you are. Uh, but the outliers, uh, show a lot of conflict on, on the gender line. But they also tend to be dickheads who, uh, are aggressive towards other men as well. So, I yes. think, well, well, you know, I don't, I don't believe they're aggressive towards men in real life. I believe that this. Oh, is no, no, online, though. Yeah, they're online. They're the ones yeah, talking about noobs is... and how much they pwn us. Yeah, yes, yes. I believe that this is an outlet for aggression for people who are not necessarily coping well in the real world, that kind of forum spewing. Yeah. yeah. Um, ga- games have socially, um, you know, because of because of social norms, games have sort of presented themselves as a safe haven for people who have difficulty adapting socially. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, not that that's true for everyone by any measure, but it makes sense that there is a vocal minority of young men online who feel that games are their safe place to be young nerdy men who can't get along in school. Mm-hmm. And then when women start invading, it's like the enemy is coming into the fortress. <laughs> <You know? laughs> how, how do you feel about people like Fragdoles separating themselves as organizations of holding themselves up like a, we're, we're gamers and you know, this is what we believe in, when really I see that as almost like they're almost playing up into the stereotype and, you know, they, they want to be, you know, girl gamers separating from the male gamers, but really, you know, ultimately sure what we want is just for everyone to play in one big market. Yeah, you know, I, I often I often go back and forth um, on how I feel about that. That is not the strategy that I choose. Um, my personal opinion is that people will stop noticing gender lines when we stop when we as women stop calling attention to them. I, I feel straight. I have always felt like if I just showed up and and did my best work without making my gender an issue, that would make people more amenable to the idea that there were not so many differences between men and women. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I usually say no to sort of women in games type discussions because I don't want to come out saying like, hey, I'm a woman in games. No, I'm many things in games, you know. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, m- more and more, I, I think it's at least important to discuss Um one thing that that I I like I would like to point out though you know just to play devil's advocate is if you look at um, say for example ethnic conflicts through the years and particularly uh, in America when particular minority groups have faced discrimination they have often overcome discrimination by embracing the stereotype and owning it they they take away for example the racial slur. From the people that used it to hurt them, and it and it becomes it becomes their word. You know what I mean? Or or you know this certain you know 
I, you know, I, I don't know that I, I agree that that's necessarily a constructive way to address it, but it's certainly, if you look at social dynamics throughout the years, that is a way that many, um, you know, oppressed minorities have, have overcome oppression by playing into it. And to, you know, sort of like the Eminem strategy, you know, like mm-hmm. he like he knew he was a, a white rapper in a, in a field dominated by by black black rappers, and so his approach was to uh, foresee all of the insults that would be levied against them and make that his character. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that when you see women who are really playing up that stereotype, it's almost like you know, yes. So what else have you got? It almost disarms the enemy a little bit. Um, I don't know if if that's something that the frag dolls are consciously doing, but. Conscious or otherwise, that's been a principle that that has been part of, of social shifts over the years. Uh, the problem is, I think Fred Doe is an obvious sample, you know, but they go out to tournaments and whatnot. But you know, there's a lot of other organisations out there which I can actually see why they exist. It's it's purely as a safe haven for people because let's face it, I mean, there's plenty of male gamers that have jumped on Xbox Live in the last few years and just completely found it so intimidating that they've never gone back there. So yeah. I, I can only imagine for you know a female gamer, it's even harder. I mean, I know with uh-huh. our group of friends. We have five or six female gamers that play with us all the time. But the reason they say they do that is because it's a closed environment. Mm-hmm. And they don't have to explore out of that. We just stay within party chat and we don't kind of subject them to, as we, you know, the, the idiots that play, you know, Call of Duty and, and Halo, uh, constantly. So I can understand on one hand, but the other side, I, I, I feel like they're almost segregating themselves away a bit too much. Yeah, no, I, I see the same, same exact conflict. I used to oppose the idea that women should segregate themselves, um, but, you know, perhaps it was naive or idealistic of me. Um, my, my attitude that I, you know, and, the, and one that I hope that other women share that if you just show up and play the game and, and, uh, you know, be a, be a gender neutral contributing member of, of the social culture, then eventually people will come to accept you. But, you know, having been, you know, the recipient of some pretty groundless attacks myself recently for the first time in my career, it really makes me rethink that and empathize mm. more with the need for women to have a safe haven where, where they don't have to deal with that at least some of the time. Mm. Can I throw a question at you which was actually uh, contributed by a reader? It's, it's yeah. kind of relevant at this point. I think you may even just have answered it, but this is from Linda Thompson. Uh, well, having female avatars in the game's main story is not always essential as you're playing through someone's story, which for a solid narrative may depend on a certain gender or even sexuality. When it comes to a multiplayer mode, there really needs to be more support for women. For as in multiplayer that you are more playing a projection of yourself than any predefined character. In Left 4 Dead, at least, there's a Zoe option. But in other games, I really enjoy playing online, such as Gears of War 2. I don't even have a token entry and end up being a guy with a hat for simplicity. <laughs> well, from what you're just saying, it's, it would seem like you know a better idea for you everyone to be sort of gender neutral. So it's like yeah, you just, you you have the giant beefy guy rather than being the token token chick with the facial tattoos. Yeah. Um, you know, and and hey, she's got a tattoo in the small of her back. Oh, and her armor has a bear midriff. Just you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I I think that would kind of I'm not saying you're wrong, Linda, but. Um, it would kind of just highlight the fact that you are a woman. And, of course, there would be plenty of guys who are like, I ain't going to be watching Marcus's ass. I'm just uh, yeah. a woman. So it would just be like Warcraft. So, um, right. you know, if, 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 if we're going to move on and be totally frigging gender neutral and it not matter that you're a woman, then, you know, what does it matter? It's, what it's, it's years of war. It doesn't matter. Just be, yeah. just be one of the beefy guys with a chainsaw gun. It doesn't, kind of doesn't, it doesn't make sense any other way, really, to me. Well, it is, it is very complicated. I agree with uh, Linda that um, in multiplayer games, the the avatar is more a representation of the player than it would be in a single player game that's driven by a closed walled garden narrative, um, and. 
you know, it's certainly a fair request to say, well, if I'm going to be representing myself in a game, shouldn't I be able to be something like myself? Um, that being said, I often, too, notice the difficulties with the female avatar choice. Like, you know, with most games you play, there's like five different kinds of men and maybe two different kinds of women, and they're all kind of stupid looking. Yeah. Um, you know. See our previous I, statements on how rough a deal both sexes are dealt. Exactly. It's a rough deal. I also think that um, I don't really believe that, you know, when a man is choosing his avatar in a multiplayer game, he maybe doesn't think of, I'm not saying he doesn't think about it, but he probably doesn't think about it the way that women really do because, not. because when we're, t when, again, one of the things I said early on in the discussion is that women are more interested in, in ideas of identity and, and interaction when they play video games than maybe men in general are likely to be. Are we including um, Gears of War 2 in this one? Yeah. <laughs> well, I gotta tell <laughs> you. Interact with I, my chainsaw. Yeah, no, I'm not a big Gears player, but I feel like I would, I would, I would choose a male avatar because that seems more consistent with the environment. But I certainly respect other people, you know, the 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 dissenting opinion who would like there to be a woman with a with a chainsaw. Yeah, you know, I I don't know. A, a lot of times, like for example, when I play Fallout. I, I make a male because I enjoy I enjoy not being myself. Um, did but, you in any way? Okay, this is actually more about Fallout, and it's totally off topic. But did you actually identify with your character in Fallout Three? Really? Mm-hmm. Really? I, did, I didn't even. Yes. I didn't even know him. He was t the opposite of Shepard in that game. Well, it was. Well, I honestly, I don't. The only difference for me, as far as self-identification between Shepard and and whoever you are and followed, is is your it's your decision. Um, I think you know it's one of my mantras that engagement is a choice. Um, whether you know the game responses are are all manufactured and designed ahead of time and they have nothing to do with you mm. it's only to you know you are making a choice whether to personalize it or not sometimes it's a con conscious choice and sometimes it's an unconscious choice there may have been something I mean, I, I can tell by your enthusiasm that there's obviously something about the game world and the themes and or maybe it's the visual style or something about Mass Effect that touched you to the extent that you felt connected. You, you made an unconscious choice to be connected to the character, whereas, you know, something was absent for you from Fallout. And for me, it was the other way around. Um, so I think that that more comes down to you know, one of the things I, I often criticize um, when we're talking about games is that players tend to have the expectation that they're going to sit down and the game is going to basically make love to them. <laughs> you know, I think in Mass Effect's case, it was true. Yeah, right, right, right. In Mass Effect's case, it was true. <laughs> <laughs> but especially when you're, where you're being delivered an open world experience um, that is designed to be something of a hybrid between a first person and a third person experience, um, you have to sort of elect how you're going to relate to your avatar or, or whether you're going to, and, and the game won't do it for you. I, I think the thing I noticed both about those games is uh, this is real baby steps into what games are going to be in the future. I, I think they make some real clumsy decisions, both those games. And it, it just feels like, you know, we're, we're not really grasping what these games can be. And I think a lot of it is down, down to just average storytelling and maybe the technology and just not being there to understand what, and well, the actions that we have really don't play out too badly into uh, into the actual game environment itself. Yeah. To, to tail off the Mass Effect thing, I think the the main difference for me between the two games was uh, character commitment. The actual narrative of Mass Effect, it felt like I was actually really watching something very cinematic unfold. Whereas Fallout 3, no offense to the game, I actually really enjoyed it, but it felt more like I was being part of a giant marionette puppet show, and I was sort of walking my marionette over to one of the guys who would sort of bobble up and down and go, oh, you got to do over this over here. And then my marionette would be given the choice of various things that you can have said, but never actually 
said anything. Sure, sure, like, sure. I never really connected with this person who I didn't really even see because he was behind a gas mask for most of the game. That's um, right. the, the, the very thing that you, you highlight as the strengths and weaknesses of those respective games, you know, one man's ceiling is another man's floor. I, mm-hmm. I was not able to engage with Mass Effect because it felt like it was, it felt like I was having to sit through a movie that I would never elect to watch or, or to sit through a book that I would never yeah, elect to yeah. read. You know, not only was I largely passive, but the subject matter and the environment was not of interest to me. Um, based on my personal taste, um, I definitely agree with you with the marionette interpretation of Fallout. But they were they were puppets that I had fun playing with. <laughs> Should we get on to some fun questions? Yes, um, oh, please. Let's. I mean, we've rounded off the women thing. Let's not go for any sort of giant, all-encompassing conclusions because that's not what we do in this show. <laughs> well, we just go right back to the discussion. I also think it, you know we, this plays into more about society and the problem with a lot of society rather than just games itself. The so games is such a small fry, really, compared to what we're having to do with outside. Of games, so I think what you said about uh, the whole the cultural impact. Um, I've actually written a couple of articles on this just to just to prepare for this one, and I said I pretty much wrote exactly the same thing about how we're new in kindergarten. The guys get to choose GI Joes, the girls get to choose Barbies, and so they shall remain. And it's it is unfortunate that 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 kind of does. I suppose for me, from my point of view, that that kind of does stick with you for the whole way through your life. And there's, I don't like girly girliness. Personally, just imagine. You're a man. (laughs) Not every guy. I'm I'm probably a bit more sensitive than a couple of other guys, but I mean, whenever my mum and sister get into a sort of really pink rage, I, I, I. my flesh crawls. Yeah, but at the same stand. time, you're, you're not into blokey blokiness either. You exactly. Don't, you don't go down I can't stand. <laughs> I can't stand extremes of any particular, you know, gender stereotyping. I just, I kind of like just going through the middle and just enjoying, you know, uh, I don't know. Um, Embrace being a geek, in other words. Yeah, ultimately, yeah. Just, just meeting somewhere in the middle, and I just, I don't like ultimately having something predefined for me and being told, right, you're a guy, you like this, you're a girl, you like this, and. Yeah, ultimately, that the whole the, the cultural thing is something that isn't going to change anytime soon. From your individual perspective, I think that's about as fair a conclusion as as we're going to arrive at. Um, unfortunately, given that you know people of either gender will fall at different points on that spectrum you described, from one extreme to another, you know, probably the conclusion will be different for everybody. Totally, that's just my conclusion. So there you go. Yes. Right. Okay. Choose three Desert Island games. You have power, but no internet connection. <sighs> Pokemon Pearl or Diamond. No one's chosen a handheld game yet, Sammy. Oh, I see. Those are my those are my primary primary occupiers. Um, probably. Oh, no internet connection. Um, let me see. That's purely so you don't choose Warcraft. Yeah, everyone chooses Warcraft. I, I wouldn't choose. Well, I wouldn't choose Warcraft. I would think of like Little Big Planet, it's like something that you could keep on playing with. That has single player um, off connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but then you know the, that it, you wouldn't have access to the library. That I actually chose Little Big Planet simply because I could keep creating and using the tools to actually do something with the game rather than just play through it and then go, well, that was fun. Yeah, but I, I would definitely have I would definitely have Pokemon Diamond or Pearl. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have uh, Luminous. Ah. And 
I don't know, uh, uh, Peggle. <laughs> so two puzzle games and Pokemon. For the, yeah, rest, the for the puzzle rest game, of your yeah. life. Well, puzzle games are, are, are pretty much the only the only games that I find endlessly renewable. Even my favorite game of all time wouldn't be my favorite anymore if it was all I had to do. See, I've st- pretty much stopped playing Peggle now. I know if I start playing it again, I'll go straight back in, but yep. I couldn't imagine playing it forever. Peggle and Puzzle Quest are two games that I hate, but I can't put down. Like, I think I hate them because I can't put them down. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm watching myself sink hours and hours and hours and hours into these games and going, what is it all for? <laughs> it's know? for Desert Island preparation. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Number two, your all-time favorite gaming machine and why? Oh, God. Uh, PlayStation 2, because it has the largest library of awesome titles. Fair enough. Good enough. Okay. Number three, who is your most admired figure in the games industry or community? Oh, God. <laughs> I get so much flack for this. It's um, it's uh, Hideo Kojima. Good. Cool. Every, yeah. Yeah. Everybody asks, you know, I'm, I'm sort of notorious for the what most people think is an unwarranted degree of fandom. No, we're just we're just sick of hearing Tim fucking Schaefer. We love Tim Schaefer. Oh, I love him too. He's a good, yeah, no, I absolutely love him. But, but uh, we yeah. get him every time we ask these questions. All the, the only thing about Hideo Kojima is he needs an editor. Oh, give him, give him an editor, he could make a masterpiece. But, you know. but well, you know, the funny thing is, is I, I feel that he's a master because he knows he needs an editor and he knows you don't like it and he does it anyway. <laughs> I, I heard what you said about. Well, I listened carefully to what you said about Metal Gear Four, and I was like, yes, I agree. No, I disagree. Yes, I agree. No, I disagree. And oh. um. Uh, we could probably squeeze a massive podcast out of just that, just talking about Metal Gear. Oh, yeah. um, fantastic series, yeah. Uh, Metal Gear 3 is definitely the, the most emotional involvement I've ever had with characters ever. That, that, is his, that's, that is his best game. And it's his least played. Yeah, I know. I don't know why. It's because of, uh, well, the original version have fucked up camera. So it's what, not, and, not, not, and then Metal Gear 2, I think the degree of convolution that the second one had warned a lot of people off the franchise yeah. when the third one was actually quite quite a great deal better distilled which is probably what contributed to Forb not being as popular as it could have been because it was so incredibly mired in a very very dense plot sure sure I don't, I don't like 4 as a game um, as you know as I mean it, in many ways it's, it's an impeccable game I, in many ways I think it's stunning but um, it his meta narrative impresses the hell out of me but I certainly sympathize with people who don't who aren't willing to accord it the same degree of praise that I do <laughs> My two cents, you know, I was, I was having fantastic time watching the storytelling. I just think the game itself was fairly average. <laughs> I'm alive. No, I'm dying. No, I'm alive again. Oh, I'm dying. Anyway. We anyway. <laughs> no spoilers here, right. Uh, by the way, I loved what Giant Bomb said today. You may not have heard it already about uh, how with Kojima gets hold of Project Natal technology, how he could fuck with the fourth wall at that stage. Oh man, that yeah. be awesome. he, he, he has enjoyed. Let me the, see your gaming shelf. Oh, you bought that piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be wonderful. No, he has. I, I like your blue eyes. Oh Christ! <laughs> the in, the the place where the intuition of of narrative butts up against the artifice of technology is, is I think, a key theme of his work. So I can't wait to see what he'll do with that as well. Let's move on because I could talk about Kojima all night. Yeah, so right. can I. Number so can four. I. Why do you play games? Nice. Um, to escape. Any more than that? Uh, no, because it's my job. <laughs> Just to escape, and it's your job. That's fair enough. Right, number five. What's your worst gaming experience ever? Uh, having to review Hail to the Chimp. <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> you poor thing. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I because it is my job, I like to think that I can find something to like about everything I play except that. 
<laughs> I, I've never said that. I, I'm so hesitant to call any game a bad game. That I, I've never felt so strongly negatively about a game that I can even say that I hate it. You know, like I can say I don't like this about it, but I understand why others like it. You know, I would never enjoy this game, but I understand why its fan base is attracted to it. Things like that. But uh, yeah, that that was an utterly empty experience. Tony subscribes to the uh, uh, idea that no one sets out to make a bad game. Would you say the makers of Hail to the Chimp did? <laughs> well, I, I, I sure, it sure seems like they do, but no, I, 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 I don't. It, it is not in my nature to mock or to knock anyone because I believe that that's true. So I, I, I don't say, I don't, I don't despise their game out of any disrespect for their attempt. I, I always said that, Alex, and then I played Jumper, the video game. <laughs> and I changed mm. my mind at that point. Mm. That's a phenomenal, legendary review from Tony on that one. Um, oh, and just, you know what? You, oh, I have one more that I really, I really uh, hate: Xenosaga. Which is, you know, uncharacteristic because I, I, not as you know, Gears, you know, Saga, because I am, you know, I tend to be much more tolerant than anybody, um, for absolute, you know, Japanese RPG slash anime slash religious esoterica tropes, and I just could not stomach that game. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Number six, one of my favorite questions, but it always seems to get the same two answers. Let's see if you go for them. Uh, what's your favorite piece of music from a video game? Oh, my favorite piece of music from a video game. Uh, the fortune teller theme from Zelda's House in, in Link to the... Not Zelda's House, from from Zelda Link to the Past, the fortune teller house song. You know what? I don't what? know why. <laughs> I, and, and, and the Chocobo theme, waltz, the Chocobo waltz. Uh, okay, the waltz to Chocobo, I can find that. Okay, so here's the fortune teller theme. have the Waltz to Chocobo coming up later on. You will know it when you hear it. Right. Number seven. Is there a trend in the industry you wish you could do away with? Trend that I wish I could do away with? Um, there are probably a couple, actually. Uh, I really do not like the idea that um, we're on some inevitable trend towards social and multiplayer everything. You know, I, I can see the appeal of that. But I, I really think we're underselling the potential of the solo play experience. If it's not working for everyone, it's because we haven't fully developed it yet. Um, I, I think that user-generated content is is promising and great, and will have many, many excellent applications. But you know, I'm not, I don't want to be a game designer. Um, you know, I want to play games, and I don't want to. If I wanted to play with my friends, I would go get together with my friends. You know what I mean? So I think that over socialization, and and over over-democratizing game design is a trend that I'm not fond of. And that we haven't had before. That's, that's quite interesting, actually. Number eight, final question. Where will gaming be five years from now? Oh, gosh, no idea. I feel like five years ago we couldn't have predicted where we are. Yeah. Um, where will it be five years from now? Gosh, I, I feel like really we're, in a, we're at an exciting time because... You know, I, I really feel that, let's say, the late PlayStation 2 era was like the high classical period of gaming. And, and you know, if you sort of follow the, the time cycle for art, 
we should be, you know, stagnating and being on a decline right now. And and for a while it seemed like we were, you know, we were we we got into heavy heavy sequelization mode. Budgets were too high for anybody to innovate, and and the 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 sticker prices kept crawling up. All the technology remained fairly the same. We were headed for this boringly realistic uncanny valley. You know, there were a lot of worrying markers two or three years ago that I just don't see anymore. I feel like we've sort of averted a crash. Uh, in the growth of our art, um, thanks to you know, thanks to the explosion of indies and 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 you know, really exciting design innovations coming out of the independent community, um, you know, Nintendo can be credited for you know really breaking down barriers with that control scheme and showing that there are some great lateral moves that we can make without having to advance technology much. And and Microsoft and Sony are are following suit. You know that. Just by changing the input, you can change the entire experience. Um, I think that um, the rise of of, uh, of broadband internet and more people can play online and more things can be distributed uh, digitally in in smaller formats is is hugely promising for game design. Um, I think that you know our great thinkers hopefully will continue to work on ways to drive player engagement. Um, so a couple years ago, I would have had a very different and and kind of bleak answer to the same question, but it, the industry is is morphing and, and, and being amoebic and surprising us at every turn. So I think what's most exciting to me about five, year, about five years from now is that I have no clue. You know, the, the funny thing is um, we had a, a lot of the same answers over and over again for whatever we've been doing this show for a long time. Um, and it, I think once E3 has come around now, and I think now you've seen Sony and Microsoft jump into this area and, and showing their motion controllers and just talking about how these boxes are going to be around for a lot longer than what we've previously been uh, thinking. I think this question... Every time we do, um, uh, uh, every time we do this, changes because I, I, you know, I think the the big three are really going different directions now, and it's becoming really, really exciting to see where we could actually be in five years from now, not just a more powerful box, which was the normal answer. Sure. Yeah, I, I actually wrote an article today on Gamasutra about how Nintendo made this very small and yet very significant um, design innovation. I didn't use the word dick measuring contest, but um, I, used equi- <laughs> I, I, I used I used equipment measuring contest because that was really what it was on both fronts. The the you know the hardware arms race. I think that everyone is seeing now that that's not the way to advance games or to attract audiences. And um, I think that having very very disparate console options is going to be a great thing for everybody. Okay, Activision threatens Sony. <laughs> now, this one's been battered around by pretty much every other podcast already, so we are coming to this one late. It happened, I think, the day after, or, yeah, the day after we recorded the last show. Uh, this is from Bobby Kotick. I'm getting concerned about Sony. The PlayStation 3 is losing a bit of momentum, and they, they don't make it easy for me to support their platform, Kotick told the UK Times Online, adding that the return of an investment is better on the Wii and Xbox 360. He started high development costs on the PS3, adding that Activision has paid Sony $500 million in royalties to boot. They have to cut the price because if they don't, the attach rates are likely too slow. If we're being realistic, we might have to stop supporting Sony. 
let's be realistic about this. Activision aren't going to be uh, stop supporting Sony. I mean, I don't think anybody here believes that is the case. Um, I think something like uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare, and I'm sure Modern Warfare 2 says hi when it sells over a million copies. That's something that Activision shareholders, I'm sure, are going to go, well, we're not making big bucks, but uh, that's that's something we can't cut away from. So let's not focus on that angle. What I kind of want to focus on is why... Bobby Kotek felt the need to do this. Surely, if you're sitting from Sony, you, this is nothing but bad news being shot across your bow. You know, they must be thinking the same reason. Why does he feel the need to have done this? It's seven. I, I definitely have a theory on that. Go. Um, Activision has very, very quickly risen to. Um, I think by dollars, um, I guess EA is still is still number one. It may be in terms of how many units they make or sell, but but Activision is number one in terms of revenue. I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure, um, but it's risen very quickly from that position, um, thanks to a, a few big hits in the acquisition of Blizzard. Um, if hardware platform holders are planning to cut prices, they're in discussions with publishers constantly. If uh, Bobby Kotick, I bet, has much more lucidity than he lets on on what mm-hmm. Sony's pricing plans are, as do the retailers. Um, I think it's clear to everybody that Sony's going to reduce that price at some point. Um, ergo, I think he's throwing his weight around in front of his investors so that when the PlayStation price reduction comes in October or December or whenever they're going to do it, you know, it looks like, <laughs> you know, he can... They responded directly right, to this. Right. He, he appears to be influential in the industry. I believe it's a very well-crafted move to bolster his, his personal PR as, as, this, as the, the leader of that company. Do you think there's any legitimacy to this story? I mean, obviously, the PS3 brings back less royalties than the other two. There's less units in the market. But oh, if he's paid $500 million in royalties, how much do you think they've earned? I mean, that's not any kind of money to sneeze at, especially if you're Activision, who's very fiscally conscious. And there's absolutely no – I think that there's no, there's, there's no merit to the story. I'm sure his, I think his comments were tough talk because he wants to be an aggressive executive and he wants to be a competitive company. And he said he comes off a bit like a dick. Great. <laughs> so, so they say, yeah. Well, that's the thing about Activision too. Their market strategy, um, you know, all all of the major publishers have have different strategies for how they want to present themselves, both to their investors, to the software publisher, to the to their competitors, and to their audiences. Um, many, you know, and and this is, you know, this is maybe from from a business perspective a wise tact. He has never bullshitted that he is some kind of gamer or people person. He he his job is to make money, and he, he's never been shy about it. At least he's honest, you know. Um, I, I hear that he's a dick. I don't know the man. Um, <laughs> but uh, Activision has no material need for us as gamers to like Bobby Kotick because we're gonna buy we're gonna buy more Modern Warfare. Come on, <laughs> you know. So do he you see a, do you see a situation where Activision in a few years' time have to do what EA do, where they they completely change their strategy due to the fact that they're they're sequelizing basically is bringing you know worse you know, worse games over the and law over of again. diminishing yes, return. Yes, absolutely. I, um, I, I uh, if if you if you read um, things that uh, John Riccatello has said when he has acted about when he has asked um, by you know not only my outlet but other outlets about the threat from Activision he smiles like he like he's like yeah I've been there <laughs> you know mm. I, I think that if if history is to repeat itself Activision will have to pull an EA in several years time um, you know unless they can manage to continue to post uh, sustained quality levels across their products. 
Um, but generally, when you're pursuing such an aggressive revenue generation model, something has got to give eventually, and that is usually quality. That's the, or so the wisdom goes. Um, you know, he's very as as, a, as an executive, um, act, you know, under Codex Steerage, Activision is very good at generating revenue. They're very strategic about it with these peripheral bundled project products and with the DLC and the map packs and things like that. Um, so. You know, they've been creative about it and they've, they've done some new ways that, you know, they've generated large revenue numbers in ways that are a bit different than the traditional churn out as much shit as possible tactic. Um, so it, it may be slightly a different course for them, but again, you can't, you cannot continue to make revenue numbers your priority above all other things without, without suffering in the eyes of your audience for some legit reason in time. So that's my sort of question. I think that'll pretty much do it. (laughs) Okay, right. Um, John Shepard leaves Microsoft just after E3. Yeah, and once again, it's it's Microsoft having another image problem here. I mean, obviously, he was the one mainly up on stage doing the, the presentation of the E3 Microsoft conference, and he's been pulling a lot of strings from, from Microsoft. Certainly, he does the uh, the actual online section of it, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, so to lose another executive, and he's off, off back to EA, so where he formally started um, the Madden studio. Yes, he actually. I, I think um, correct. You know, I, I, I wrote the article on on his career move. I think he's he's had like 20 years at EA. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in a, in a two decade career, he spent two you know less than three years of his 20 of his two two and a half decade career as a as a Microsoft. You know, yeah, less 2007 he's yeah. appointed. So. Yeah, yeah. The the vast vast majority of his time in the industry has been at EA. Um, and and there's been a lot of talk about how how this move might have something to do with the E3 presence or something. But when an executive of that at that level makes a move, I'm, I'm sure that Microsoft was aware of it for quite some time. Um, so, things like that don't tend to happen suddenly. How do you think this leaves Microsoft at this point? Because they seem to be losing their executives back to the former companies once they've come. Um, and really, when you actually start thinking about it, who now do they have as a presence? I mean, Peter Moore, of course, was a very, very strong presence for them. And I never really felt like they replaced him. So now they have one less. I mean, do you feel that they they need somebody else to be a stage presence? Absolutely. Microsoft definitely has a communications problem. Um, and I, I, I know John Shepard. I've, I've, you know, not, not on any kind of deeply personal mm-hmm. level, but I've spoken um, personally with him on several occasions. He is, um, he's got a designer's backbone and, and he's a gamer. And the way, you know, th- this is not, I want to be absolutely clear that this is not based on any conversations I've had with him, but just my own best guess, um, that Microsoft tried to make a shill out of a man who whose heart was in design. Um, I always felt that the mouthpiece role was not appropriate for him on a personality level or on an expertise level. Um, it was not mm-hmm. the best use of his skills. Microsoft, I mean, Microsoft obviously doesn't have a problem having a good position in the market, but I, I have felt that they have a, a sincerity problem and a communication problem. I, uh, I, I do feel that they have prioritized, you know, being mouthpieces, you know, in, just in terms of their consumer-facing communication. Mm-hmm. This is not a reflection on them as a company or on their product. Like, um, l- during E3 last year, I was with Kotaku, and, and we did a series of on-camera interviews with several Microsoft executives. And, you know, while I'll decline to judge, the commenters at Kotaku were very vocal about saying, you know, this guy is obviously so fake, he just keeps repeating the same marketing lines. You know, that that's sort of the general criticism of Microsoft's um, you know, spokespeople. I, 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 their, their PR agency is one of the best um, 
extant and one of the ones that I have you know some of the most pr- pleasure working with. But in terms of their internal spokespeople, um, I think they definitely do have to work on on solidifying like who who the face of the Xbox is. Um, they have so many businesses too. I think part of that is due to them being a global technology company and not just a game company. Um, you know. To, and, and Sony, Sony has that challenge as well, but but they have really individualized the American presence for PlayStation. Like ever, you know, you know. Um, but Microsoft has so many divisions. They have like you know the interactive entertainment business. They have the Xbox Live business. They have the Xbox as a whole business. They have entertainment and devices division. You know, so there, there there's I think I think it would serve them a bit if if they could get someone who could be not only an effective leader but a good face for the company. Okay, picture the scene: E3 2010. Microsoft press conference, Peter Molyneux walks on stage to basically host most of the uh, press conference. I Possible? Yeah, yeah, because Molyneux not only, you know, ha- has inspired people with his design ideas, but he's, you know, charismatic, a good speaker. He has gen, he, he there, there is a grain of truth behind, you know, not only does he have good ideas, but he's also good at talking about them. Mm. Um, so I, I think that that would be a better fit, yeah. The one possible pothole being that um, he talks and bigs up so much everything that he gets excited about that everyone, uh, you know, everyone with a head on their shoulders is fairly wary of him because they think, okay, right, uh, think about what Peter's saying, extrapolate from that about 40% of yes. what he's actually yes. saying, Absolutely. and there you have something closer to the truth. I mean, ultimately... You know, did he, did he do more harm than good to the unveiling of Natal? Because, you know... On one hand, who could have presented it more compellingly than him? But then on the other hand, everyone said, "Oh, it's Molyneux, so you have to take it with a huge grain of salt." Precisely. You know, so so uh, I, I definitely agree with that criticism as well. Um, Microsoft has always talked big. Um, you know, if you, if you see Aaron Greenberg, he's got one of the biggest mouths of anybody out there. You know, the, I, I don't think that being a big talker has necessarily hurt Microsoft. So maybe if if the Molyneux big talk was more integrated with the Microsoft big talk, and and they were able to put their mouth, you know, money where the mouth is a bit more consistently. Um, as a collective force, um, I, I think that that could maybe be overcome. I think the a year's worth of being creative was it creative director now uh, director of Europe yeah. director of, of um, the, you know many other people's projects rather than just being constantly involved with his own may give him a bit of perspective for the next year so that maybe he will dial it down maybe he will be a bit more. I don't know, realistic, because he seems to have had his head in the clouds for the past 10, 15, 20 years now, uh, and, and getting so excited about his projects, and now he's got much more responsibility. So I, 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 I would put my money on him being a, a, a major part of the conference next year. But isn't that the point? You, you want some guy that wants to, you, know, you want him to sell you something. You yeah, want, you want to get excited him. with him rather than thinking, oh, all you care about is the money, mate. Yeah, you, you want to believe in, in the products that he's selling. And yeah. I think Peter Molyneux would be the perfect that person there to actually because do that. he does he does yeah. if he if 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 the reality doesn't match up to the hype it's not because he lied to us it's because he was just so excited you know and and such a futurist you know in his own mind maybe if nothing else you know what i mean that th- th- there is at least the at least the perception of genuine enthusiasm there for sure okay final news item playstation network final fantasy 7 released last week very popular apparently we want it 100,000 in two weeks. That's quite a number. <laughs> it led me to believe that if uh, Sony had um, if Sony had basically put into motion the m- much-mooted Final Fantasy VII remake many years ago, they might have shifted a few damn consoles in the meantime. Because clearly, I mean, there's going to be a hell of a lot of people who would have bought the PS3 just for Metal Gear 4. Mm. 
And the, or would have bought it just for an FF7 remake. Precisely. <laughs> uh, I'm just, I think it's, this is more a question of why the hell Squaresoft haven't. And obviously it's somewhere on some drawing board in some sort of stage of prep, but it's, it's just a question of why haven't they done it yet? Does, doesn't this answer your question itself? Because they can keep on milking the franchises on like 50 different ways before they need to release the Final Fantasy VII remake. Because they <sighs> can just in the meantime, sell 100,000 copies for a game that is ancient. In the meantime, the PlayStation has undeniably fallen into a little bit of a decline in comparison to the PlayStation 2 and PlayStation 1. So, I mean, it, when it finally comes out, will it be too late? Will there only be such and such an installed base? Or will the PS3 be now down to a slightly more reasonable price and thus it'll probably get more yeah, players what am I talking about of course but you're also limited down to the fact that the fact that it may be a PlayStation 3 exclusive I think the way that uh, Squaresoft has been acting at the moment <laughs> I, d- I would doubt that very much to be the case oh, you're probably right on that one Lee did you buy this uh, download um, uh, well I, I, uh, I have a, a pr- promotional yeah but I would have bought it anyway <laughs> do you have the discs uh, yes. <laughs> then why? Um, why? You have too much money. So that I can beam it onto my PSP. Ah, okay, fair. Yep. Fair enough. I, I did actually say that to my wife. I have the discs. I was hovering over the buy button because I thought, I can just flog the discs and have it on the hard drive. But if I had a PSP, that would have been the decider on it. Yeah, yeah. And actually, my my for what it's worth, I have not picked up my PSP since Crisis Core last year. It was, you know, my, I, I am a much more of a DS player. So, uh, it, it, you know, with, with except for some intermittent Metal Gear, uh, Metal Gear on acid. PSP. Uh, yep, yep. Uh, no, not Acid. Um, Portable Ops. Yeah, Portable Ops. Yes, yes. I don't. I'm not. I don't actually like Acid, but I, I like. No Portable one Ops. does. <laughs> <laughs> time for what you've been playing ah uh, sure okay right what you've been playing guess first <sighs> peggle <laughs> oh, peggle and luminous I've, I've actually been in, in sort i get sometimes into gaming funks i think that's a consequence of, mm-hmm. of of it being a real obligation of my work you know i feel an enormous pressure to keep up um any one of my audiences any member of my audience could probably kick my ass at any popular game right now and this is playing more than i do because honestly you know i'm up at you know, I start work at about 7.30 in the morning, and sometimes I write on my weekends. And, and when I finish work and, and, and my time is my own, a lot of times I, I, I just don't like to go play video games. Um, <laughs> I'm, guessing, <laughs> I'm guessing from your Twitter that you like to listen to music as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. That has become, that has become my <laughs> hobby, yeah. <laughs> what, Twitter or music? <laughs> uh, both. Yeah, clearly, if you follow my Twitter, you, you can see that, that I have quite an affinity for both Twitter mm-hmm. and music. But, you know, I, I, I absolutely, I, I've never stopped loving video games, and, and I just have jags where I simply play things that I've played a billion times before. But I play Symphony of the Night from beginning to end, like, three times a year. Like, 
<laughs> comfort gaming, basically. Comfort gaming, yes, exactly. You know, and so so games are constantly a presence in my life. But there's a lot of p- periods of time where I choose choose them for mindless comfort and familiarity rather than innovation and exploration and stimulation. It's like reading a good book that you read Absolutely. twelve times before. Oh yeah, completely. Okay, well, I'm going to just do mine. I will be fairly quick on these ones. Um, right, Little Big Planet. I've been playing with my wife some more. It's a totally different game in two-player mode. In all seriousness, it's just, it's completely different. It's also a hell of a lot more annoying, even in the single-player mode, because you don't just die unfairly. Uh, you and your wife or partner or friend or whoever also dies unfairly, losing your two lives at once. Um, we're going to try and get someone from uh, Media Molecule or someone from Sony on to talk about Little Big Planet and what their possible plans are to make it more accessible because it clearly didn't do as well as it needed to. It's an art project. It's not a platform game. It needs to be discussed properly. I love that game, but for fuck's sake, the life system sucks. <laughs> um, but I, I've just been really I've, I've been admiring some of the levels, and there's you know you know I, I'm going to publish some of my favorite uh, big, little big planet levels on the blog just because um it's 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 worth people tracking these ones down but uh yeah to me this is one of the best games of last year and also one of the most fucking annoying games of last year if not all time also been playing zelda on the uh ds now lee did, nah lee did you buy a dsi mm, uh no not yet yeah good <laughs> I've been playing uh, Four Swords uh, Link to the Past uh, on the GBA and I've got this theory going that basically um, the DSi is one of the most patently obvious downgrades which you get to pay for in years because huh. it takes away that ever so important uh, GBA slot now you don't have to buy it obviously but you know if you want to future proof your DS you get the one where you can download the games however the games you're currently downloading are shit like Mario Clock Whereas you won't be able to play things like Zelda Four Swords, because obviously they can then charge you when they bring it out on the whatever. Now, that's fine. I understand Nintendo have to look forward, and they have to keep rehashing these games over and over again. But it would really bug me if I had the ability to have DS, I mean, sorry, GBA games, which are some of the best games on the SNES, taken away from me. Mm. And well, I still past. I still have my GBA. I, I've never gotten rid of it. I actually have one as well. I've got a um a, a GBSP because I just love that little sort of flip. Screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The flip one. Yeah, yeah the red one. Awesome. I'm keeping it. So right. when when my uh, baby girl, who's currently ten months old, finally says I want to play a video game, I go here you go, honey, your very own GBASP. I so feel she- like maybe maybe GBASP may be my second favorite gaming platform of all time after uh-huh. the PlayStation Two. Well, you know, ultimately it, it took well, what was a completely fucking janked games or well, handheld and just you know corrected all of the problems with it: the battery life, the, uh, the the flip screen, so it made it much more compact. It looked cool and stylish, and oh, so important, the backlight. Yeah, <laughs> it's like the DS light over the DS fat. Yeah. Wow. But um. I just think the DSi is a ridiculous downgrade compared to... You know, to yeah, and, and especially if Nintendo's trying to go digital, I have never, 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 never put my, put my, hitched my star to Nintendo's wagon as far as successfully leveraging download or internet or, or multiplayer or anything like that. They have never, never made decent use of connectivity um that's always been a problem with the friend code from the friend codes on the ds to the multiplayer on the wii and and all of that they have never made it easy they obviously don't know how to do it as well as say your xbox and your, and your playstation do um so yeah i'm i'm for if i want to download portable games i'm, I'm going psp go for so, sure this so is becoming your- thematic with this episode but i completely 100 totally agree nintendo is shit at online tony yeah <laughs> so so Lee, what's your opinion on psp go then 
Oh man, I uh, I when when they I was I was there when when they I was at E3 in the conference when they unveiled it, and I was like, meh, yeah, 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 get to the games. But you know, I, I was not moved, and I said, you know, this this is nothing new under the sun. It's just a smaller, more expensive one. But then I actually got to go and hold it. Ah. You know, not bolted to this the booth. I, I was in an interview with some Sony folk, and and they talked to me about it at length and answered various questions of mine at length and let me play it. And I left that interview. You know, I, I'm not a, not ashamed to say salivating as a consumer. To, to own one. Not only is is it you know like the sexiest piece of, of hardware I have held in a long long time, but um, it play, if it plays well. It, you know everyone's worried about the button size or how does it work and does it turn on accidentally. No, it's, it function hardware functionality is awesome. Number one, and um, number two, the most significant thing about the PSP Go is that they're sort of working with an iTunes style digital locker model. Mm-hmm. So so you can sort of have a a uh, an online account of everything that you own and then choose what goes on the hardware and what doesn't. So, you know, you, you won't have to worry about the memory size. Um, you know, I think that, you know, Sony's been ramping up the software library for the PSP already. They've got, they've already started to really make, you know, work on making it a contender. Um, so I, I don't doubt that, that the software support's going to be there. I know that developers are really enthusiastic about downloadable handheld, and the connectivity with the PS3 is going to be there so that you, you'll be able to you know, have a lot of flexibility, a lot of options. Um, as someone who's a huge iPhone slash iTunes user, um, the fact that I could sort of port this simplicity, this portability, this trendiness and sexiness onto my handheld gaming is, like, super awesome. They're going to have um, – God, I'm going to confuse the music provider now because several of the console – you know, makers have unveiled partnerships, but they're going to have, you know, music playlists for that as well. Um, I doubt it will, you know, I don't use my iPhone for gaming. Uh, I use it, uh, but I use it as my music player. Um, I doubt that the PSP could replace the iPhone as my music player, but, you know, it basically has so many possibilities and it's so, so sexy. Like, oh, yeah, I, I obviously now I'm frothing idiotically, but I've got to have it. I will pay but, 250 for it. So, so the ripping out of the UMD drive doesn't bother you really at all? No, I hated the UMD. That's why I didn't use the PSP because uh, you had to carry the discs around. Like with the DS, carrying cartridges around was not a problem because they're about the size of postage stamps. Mm. But you know, the UMD, you know, I had in my purse at any given time. Not only this heavy, heavy piece of hardware, but because the screen was exposed, I needed it in a case as well, a hard case as well. And then I would have to have the box with the UMD inside, or risk having a a, a little UMD bouncing around inside my bag and getting tobacco flakes and and Tic Tacs in it or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was unwieldy as it was unwieldy as hell. But the PSP Go has, in one fell swoop, p- fixes all of the reasons that I didn't use my PSP, which was because it was too heavy, it was unwieldy, and it didn't have the software, and it didn't have much enhanced functionality. But the PSP Go has all of the above. So would you say it was fair to say it's kind of like holding up an iPod and then next to it a mini disc player and saying which is better? Yeah, it, precisely. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear pe- I, people who were not at E3 and who only read coverage. I think that Sony can do a much better job communicating to the audience about why this thing is so great because I think a lot of people didn't get it. There's still yeah. a lot of there's still a real lack of clarity on how it's different and what it can do. Their major um, problem lies. Sorry to interrupt. Their major problem lies in the fact that if they say no, no, it's really awesome. It's really awesome. They alienate every mother. Yes, fucker yes. Because, who bought a PSP. because they had this problem with the PS3 too. They had this problem with the PS3 too. The PS3 can do quite a lot more than be a gaming console, but Sony never adequately communicated that in a way that convinced consumers of that added value. They never, you know, you could make a cogent argument that the PS, the PlayStation 3, you know, 
is worth the it's having a higher price tag than the Xbox for all of these various reasons. The lack of having to pay for the digital subscription, the presence of the Blu-ray drive. I mean, if you think of, let's say, if you're an Xbox Gold subscriber, how much does that add to the cost of your console? I mean, there is a fair argument to be made for the PS3's value proposition. Sony never made it. I hope they don't make that that mistake with the PSP Go. I hope that they really do a good education campaign that lets people know what the value add is exactly and why why they're pricing it so high because yeah, I think that the, the general impression from gamers right now is like this is a lot of money for something that isn't much different when when in fact I think it's a big step. I think yeah I think obviously you can add up the value competition but I, I think when you look at someone like Microsoft and they're paid for online service you know the gold subscription I mm-hmm. think they've made a fairly made it fairly clear why you're paying that money because ultimately yeah. you have a Sony service which just doesn't work as well. I mean, that's not right. being biased. It just doesn't work as well. And I think this is why you're seeing Sony try so many different methods to actually yeah. pull back some of that money so they can actually, you know, give sure. a decent service. But at but the same time, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I am not a heavy online user. So, and I, you know, I'm only in the, I'm in the lower end of being an online user. So for consumers like me, that that's less of an issue. And then you could, you know, to me, I think that Sony has a lot more promising um, innovations happening, and in, you know, in its downloadable exclusives and the things that say like your your John Max and your Jenna Vicens are, are doing for the platform, you know. Okay, let's move on quickly. We've got to get to the end yeah. of this show, right? Um, also played Gunstar Heroes and completed Gunstar Heroes in one sitting. Yeah, wow, on, good for you. Hardcore. It was on easy. I was a pussy, but I'll go back to oh. it on normal. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, I'd, I'd never played it before, and I missed it when I had a, a Genesis and. For God's sake, why the hell did I miss it? I bought pieces of shit games like Balls when I could have been buying this. Oh, wow. <laughs> if you like Pro Protector, if you like Contra, if you like uh, Metal Slug, you will love it. If you don't, if you've never played it before, you, you know, just use that as a bullet hell <laughs> thing. If you don't like those, bless you, if you don't like those kind of games, of course you're not going to like it. Don't even worry about it. But it's worth trying the demo at least so you can acclimatize yourself to it. Although the demo does not really show off the awesomeness of the game and specifically that boss that turns into seven things. Although in my easy version, he only turned into three things. But um, it's, it's the, 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 um, the innovation and the, the, the incredible things they do with the crappy Genesis technology. Which, you know, they're really, really pushing it. And they've got the rotation effects. It's it's definitely a rival for the SNES kind of stuff, which was coming out at the same time with the, the Mode 7 and things. And um, It was sadly missing from the Sega Ultimate Genesis collection, and I think to that end makes a worthy 400 points for anyone who's into sort of retro gaming. Okay. Yeah, 400 points, that's nothing. Hells yeah. Right, and finally played Ghostbusters. Tony, I'm, I will let Tony talk about Ghostbusters himself because I've been basically hogging this. But... Um, my uh, interaction with Ghostbusters was this. I played it on Friday night for about an hour or so. had great fun with it. Got to the end of the hotel section. I was like, oh, fuck, I've got to go to bed now. Um, otherwise, it's going to be really, really uh, late, and I'm going to get up in the morning. So I, I uh, finished it off um, before I went on to the next checkpoint. I thought, okay, right. So I'll, this is still saved. Checked on the title screen. It's still saved. It's like, fine. Right, okay. Went away. Came back to it yesterday, and my game wasn't there. And I went, fine. <sighs> I must oh, have man. been on as one of my other accounts on PS3. It's fine, fine. I went back in with my other account, my USA one, for playing Drix, uh, sorry, the Uncharted 2 demo, um, and it wasn't on there either. So I went back, and I started a new game. I was like, hang on, do you get to check the thing? And it was like, right, you're starting from scratch. And I basically, it had gone. So I did some checking around, and apparently, your games do sometimes disappear. And apparently hard resetting and like turning off the PS3 and back on again might make them reappear. Uh, But if you start a new game, (laughs) if you start a new game, it's gone. So you could play almost to the end and it could just disappear. 
Well, how is that for the worst fucking bug of all time? Yeah, no, that's that's pretty egregious. So, so I, I mean, went back yesterday and I played that same fucking hour again, only this time it wasn't great fun. It wasn't lovely and immersive. And I wasn't thinking, yeah, Ghostbusters, my favorite film ever. The first film I ever saw in the cinema. I was five years old at the time. I fucking loved it. I fucking love Ghostbusters. This time I was like, fuck you. Stupid game. Stupid, stupid <laughs> game. Making me do these same scripted bits over and over again. Oh, finally. Yeah, right. The, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Spoiler alert. Anyway, yeah. um, and I saved it there, but I'm, I'm, I'm dreading going back to it in case the save is gone and I have to play fucking jump out, jump in, jump out, jump in. Maybe it's gone forever. That this is, is the forgivable. It's the PS3 version, by the sounds of it, that is having all... Uh, apparently the Xbox version also has this problem. Not that I've seen, and I've put like 10... I in. really hope it doesn't happen to you, mate, because at least one of us has to finish this game. It might not be me. What, what I actually did have was where it dis- I um, upgraded a ton of my equipment, and it went into the next cutscene. I died after the next cutscene, came back, and <laughs> my equipment had gone, um, and it had taken my money as well <laughs> um, luckily it was only Ghostbusters Space Bucks as opposed to no but uh, basically there's achievements the, the tied to, shit. there's achievements tied to buying all the equipment and uh, I'm right at the final boss at the moment and it's only just taken me to get to the final boss just to be able to buy my last piece of equipment so that game does have weird bugs badly and this is the 360 version as well not the, uh, yeah. the PS2 one now Hawks went off on a massive rant uh, Hawks of Game Hounds by the way awesome podcast uh, about um, Terminal Reality and uh, that was basically about the fact that the uh, the, the graphics on the PS3 were slightly more um, janky, inferior. It's like inferior, and there's like, a few details that have been taken off. I personally haven't been able to see the two next to each other, and it's not really bothered me that much. But this is a game-breaking bug for me. It is it is the point where I was like, right, if this happens again, I'm never going to ever play Ghostbusters ever again until they fix this. So. Well, to talk a bit more about Ghostbusters, I have been playing it, and like I say, I, up until I, I came out to do the podcast here, I, I got onto the final boss, and I have really been enjoying it. It's it's got some areas where you know the difficulty ramps up, and it, it becomes a, a you know a task of attrition just to get past certain things. And, Not matter you know, to me, mate. Certain... Playing on easy, just want to walk through and be a Ghostbusters tourist. Okay, well, I was playing on professional. <laughs> it feels like you're in a theme park because it's like, hey, you can be a Ghostbuster for a day when you play but, on easy. So. No, but but it. They've got it all right. I think throwing, you know, throwing the the trap down and then raggling ghosts into the actual uh, the trap, yeah, and totally. and they they've added new you know game mechanicy things. So you get a slime tether where you can fire it as a ghost and then bring it down into a trap or into a you know a wall. And it's just, but they they've got the core mechanic of just ghost bustering perfectly. You know, fa- well, fantastic. I actually think I've really really enjoyed it. I think where they haven't succeeded quite so much is in the storytelling. Um, it kind it. They they try to make it into a third film, and it's got the hallmarks there, but it just it's not as good as films. You know, the the kind of broken up pace of game storytelling. It just it doesn't really you know lend itself uh, particularly well to it. I mean, it, it it has really good voice acting, but it just it seems somewhat disjointed. Um, but at least they have all the characters there, and all the characters are, are voice acted by you know Bill Murray. Um, Dan Aykroyd, Old Ramis, no Sigourney Weaver, Ernie Hudson, no Sigourney Weaver, no um, uh, Rick Moranis, but uh, is, is um, William Atherton's back in it, I hear, isn't he? Walter yes. Peck. Peck's in it. With a fake electronic light um, show. But overall, it's good fun. I mean, unfortunately, we're a European podcast here, and um, yeah. 
the 360 version isn't available in the UK thanks to Sony's uh, wonderful uh, exclusivity rights they suddenly dumped on it, you know, with us about two months ago. Tinfoil so, hats on, by the way. I think they looked at the PS3 version and the 360 version side by side and went, fuck, this one's not going to sell at all to those people who've got both. Let's make <laughs> it exclusive in the UK, huh? How about that, huh? <laughs> it's, yeah. it's not out Should in the be- UK until, I think, October the 13th, something like that. So a fair chunk of a time away. So I'm, because it's, you know, Thanks to Atari announced that it was region free, so I imported my copy from the States. Thank you very much. I'm playing my 360 version now, and it <laughs> runs perfectly fine, apart from the odd little weird bug. But uh, no, it, it looks fantastic, and it's a really, you know, really, really good experience. I haven't tried any of the co op on multiplayer yet, so I'll review that next week. Me neither, actually. Um, on top of that, I've been playing a whole ton of Halo 3 again. Well, so su- fucking surprise me. No, the reason <laughs> I'm bringing this, the reason I'm bringing this up, I've not been playing Halo 3 multiplayer as such, I've been playing through the campaign again in co op before people, but we've been playing on the mythic difficulty setting which is one above legendary basically you get the mythic skull which you can then put on and it changes once again it changes the game completely because you can sticky grenade a brute and he just takes a stick in his chest it blows up and he goes yeah whatever yeah it basically takes three or four sticky grenades to take him down so it leads to just really fun tactics from all the people who have to be completely on top of their game and and you know really know how the halo universe works and that has been really enjoyable so i've been going all the way through the game again rewatching all the cutscenes still love that game whatever that that game shines in co-op and i don't care what people say so did you choose this as one of your desert island games if you didn't uh, you really yeah. should no i did yeah i did yeah yeah okay <laughs> i'm a halo fanboy whatever totally um he has Master Chief tattooed Every, on Everybody his has a right to be a uh, fanboy of something. But uh, We've always said this. Halo, you're, a Call you're a Call of Duty fanboy, you're a Halo fanboy, by the looks of it if you play an online shooter, and I just I can't stand Call of Duty multiplayer. That's just you either fall into one of those categories. But on top of this, the, a bit of European news. Back on June 11th, PlayStation 3 had an update to the, the service, um, and they brought out a, a piece of um, software called VidZone. Yeah. This completely passed me by until I, you know, I checked the PlayStation for every couple of weeks and uh, I was like, oh, download this little application VidZone. Now, what it is, and Microsoft have been making this big down about Last FM coming to the 360 later in this year. Um, VidZone is basically that, but they're all music videos. Um, like I say, European exclusive, well, and Australia, so bunk them into the same thing. But it's got over 25,000 music videos on there. And it's got fantastic search engines. You just type in the Snow Patrol and bang, 20 of their Snow Patrol videos come up. And you can just sit there and watch them. Well, you type in Coldplay and bang, nothing shows up. Bang, nothing shows <laughs> up. And there's the Coldplay weird Coldplay have pulled so, out for some reason. Yeah, Coldplay, Iron Maiden, you know, some of the, the real awkward bands that, you know, have been awkward for many years. Madonna. Course, I don't know why I know that, but yeah, I wasn't looking for Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it does have. I like the video tons. for Frozen. It has tons of um, indie bands as well, so stuff I've never heard of. And I found myself just trawling through this service. Um, I must admit, the first night I found this, I was watching music videos for four hours straight. <laughs> it was it was like the first time I found MTV. It was incredible. I was like, and this, and then there'd be a link down the bottom saying, look at this. And I've never heard of them, and they're going, wow, this is fantastic. You so, just uh, it sort of does suggestions. You can add stuff to your playlist, and you can sort yeah, of loop can, it up, and you can go back and forth, and you know, it's 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 what iTunes would be awesome with, but they'd make you pay a subscription for. Yeah, and they, as a, or, or two bucks a video, which is crazy. And you you can you build these massive libraries of playlists and you can add it to like just play at that one section. Or you can, can you can you, you save 
them. Yeah, you can, yeah. You can actually save your playlist. Oh, brilliant. So, I, I think you know, I, I made a brilliant, huge playlist and then came back and it was gone. Was, uh, yeah, if you put it into now playing, it doesn't it doesn't save it, unfortunately. Right, but, um, okay, cool. Um, the good thing about it is about five-minute install, so it takes a while to actually get there. But once it's installed, you basically click on one of these videos and they load instantaneously. There's no waiting. They're just streaming. The quality, obviously, isn't HD, but it's, it's pretty good. It's better quality. than YouTube. It's about the same as iTunes. And well, we've mentioned this earlier in the show. I don't know what is wrong with Sony's PR. This is a fantastic <laughs> little application, something that I didn't even know about. We are the first people to talk about it. Uh, it yeah, would appear I've, on I've the heard, podcast. I've heard nobody talk about it, and I honestly have spent more time watching videos in this service than I have playing my PlayStation 3 in the last two weeks. So it's just it's, it's something like that. It's like, Sony, get your ass into gear and shout about this. I know about last, more about Last FM, a service that isn't available until fall, than <laughs> VidZone that's just sitting on my, free, no, my PS3 at this current moment. So their PR is just messed up. So if you're in the UK, stroke Europe, stroke Australia... And have a PlayStation 3... And have a PlayStation 3, of course. So, um, yeah, that's what I've been doing this week. Random game of the week, and then we are out of here. This week's random game isn't the least bit random. It's never heaven, are. It is Heavenly Sword. Developed by Ninja Theory, released on PlayStation 3 only in 2007, it's a God of War or Ninja Gaiden style slash em up with a Conan the Barbarian style plot and a strong, beautiful female lead. Now, I specifically chose this one because I don't think we mentioned her at all in the talking about females in games, but she's one of my favourite female characters in a game. It's it's key to the story that she's a female because it's uh she's a child of the prophecy she's supposed to be you know wielding this sword and she was supposed to be a boy but uh she's a girl and she's been basically uh raised in this warrior culture uh her name's Nariko and she's incredibly strong incredibly sort of you know intense and charismatic i mean they don't really go massively into her character but she's just so much not so much fun but it's just it feels really exhilarating to play as her. She's got this, like, giant red octopus on her head, which makes up her hair. I think, didn't this, like, take a billion, like, like what, like one third of the game's engine was just dealing with her hair yeah, or something hair. like that. Well, it's crazy. But have you played it, uh, um, Lee? Uh, I played it. I never owned it, and nor did I finish it. Oh, my Lord. Right, do you like God of War? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, for, okay, right. This is aimed square at you, then. No, that's Go my wh- genre. Like, I don't play the shooters. I play, I'm play. i Devil May Cry, God of War right. uh, type, uh, Bayonetta type enthusiast, and not a uh, Halo Call of Duty Modern Warfare type. How far did you get on this game, do you remember? What was the last thing you remember doing? Oh, God, it was way too long ago. I don't okay, remember. Right. right, now, it is, in England, £6 secondhand on Amazon, which is a fucking steal considering how mm. epic every, uh, so how it's like a 10 hour game though isn't it I think that it received criticism for being too brief and so too maybe brief, that's but like, for the price it's going for now that's fine it's and also yeah. a little broken and a little hard on occasion that's what it is say, yeah. it's quite unfair at times and there were times when I was like I am never gonna beat this boss it can't be done and Okay, right. Basically, the amount of like you know, f- you know, frothing at the mouth everyone's been doing about God of War three. If every single one of those people has played to death Heavenly Sword, that's fine. But if they haven't, they should go get this game right now. And I shall tell you for why. 
Uh, it's basically, it's, it's got, to me at least, a better fighting system than uh, God of War. It's, you switch it effortlessly and instantly between, it's got real-time weapon change. Just like, um, what was that one, Genji? Uh, yeah. And basically you switch between your three types of uh, sword, your sword transforms. It goes into sort of nunchaka-style um, uh, you know, uh, scythe things on a chain, which is for fast attacks. And then you've got your standard swords, which are sort of like um, long daggers. And then it turns into a giant, massive meat cleaver type thing to do your heavy attacks. And you switch up between those three attacks, with, uh, you know, depending on what enemy is coming at you. It's actually very similar to uh, a much less polished game, Conan, on the uh, Xbox and PS3. Um, and, I mean, it, it, it borrows heavily from God of War. It's full of um, quick-time events, but it's just so beautiful to watch. And the best thing about this, by far and away, is the motion capture and the acting, because it, it involves Andy Serkis and the, the actual the effort that's gone into really characterizing them. Yeah, yeah, the facial capture, the, the, the delivery on all the lines. Everyone's really serious about it, but at the same time, it's this really sort of epic story, much like God of War, only the, the, uh, the actual the motion capture. And Andy Serkis was Gollum. And he plays the, the the lead villain in this Bohan, who's this you know as opposed to Gollum's tiny frail little guy. Bohan is this giant you know massive you know beefy guy. And he, at the same time, he is quirky and insane. And he's, he, they allow Circus to really work with the character. And so you really feel this sort of you know threat from this guy, even though he's at the same time extremely entertaining. And so you've got this story going on through the whole thing, and it's, it's basically just you're slashing the shit out of guys the whole way through. And there's this sort of, you know, constant pressure of time, and, you know, this, this thing's, you know, you're going to get invaded, everyone's going to die unless you get to the end really quickly. And there's a couple of really quite mistimed uh, six-axis events where you've got to fire arrows at people. And the cannons as well. So big, yeah, and the cannons. And the cannons are much worse than the arrows, but it's like you've got to like tilt the pad and get the cannonballs in the right place, and it's all time sensitive. It's like gimmicky. Oh, but the the bits with the arrows. Once you get the hang of it, firing an arrow and then just guiding it across the level, you know, ages and ages until you finally get it in the forehead of a guy. It suddenly becomes when you get the hang of it really satisfying, and it really actually works. The character of Kai, another female in it, is really frail and delicate. Oh, I loved the way that character was yeah. designed. She's mm-hmm. absolutely crazy and you feel really sorry for her and then things unfold later where you realise why she's crazy and you, your heart breaks at seeing what's made her like this and there's, you know, there's this sort of sub-boss character called uh, Flying Fox played with ridiculous over-the-topness by a British actor named Stephen Burkoff who is just like no Nalika, oh, come here and I shall kill you he's, no, he's don't. really over the top mm. but at the same time you want to kill him so badly and he's the guy who on two occasions I was like I'm not going to beat him. It's not possible. But when you do beat him, and you can, check it out on F- Game FAQs or YouTube, it's so satisfying. And when you get to the end, the ending is such a resounding, kind of epic, uplifting, incredibly sad. It's brilliant. I love this game. It's, I, I, I could have I've never this. heard anyone say that they loved it. That's I awesome. love no, no. this game. It's flawed, but I love this game. We reviewed this way back in you know, the early days of the podcast, but I think the reason we love it so much, I think it does so much in storytelling. I think the problem is the game itself is a little broken. Yeah. And it's uh, it's at the time when it came out on the PS3 where everyone was expecting the next big thing from PlayStation 3 that we wanted to see these massive epic masterpieces. And what they were given was essentially a, a God of War clone, but a God of War clone with really good story of its own. And people were so like, oh, well, it's just God of War. Now, obviously, what we, ha- what we had two years down the line is, yeah, games haven't really changed too much, but what this proved is that it has had a really good story and I think too many people jumped on it just for the case of it it was a God of War clone so 
Yeah, I think that there's in general a lack of patience to sort of look beyond mm-hmm. the surface with stuff. Yeah. It's it's not particularly fantastic writing. I don't want to so over, oversell it on this. You're not going to read it and listen to it and go, this is fantastic or that this is better than... But if it was a film and you watched it and the, the amount of heart and soul that goes into the characters from the people doing the acting, if it was just an animated film... It would be, I mean, it kicks the shit out of something like Final Fantasy The Spirits Within or, or Final Fantasy right. uh, Advent Children, which even, you know, even if you love Final Fantasy, was just a smidgen shallow compared to the actual game. Uh, and I do love that film, but it's just one action scene after the next. Um, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of basically what it, it's, it's up against Beowulf, which I fucking love as a film um, in terms of. The actual yeah, emotion. Yeah, yeah. yeah, shut up, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> shut up, Tony. Uh, the emotion inserted in, into the characters and instilled. They embody those characters. And that is so rare that you get that in a game. I honestly do say to everyone who's got a PS3, spend the £6. Buy this game. If you get pissed off with it, leave it. Come back to it in a bit. But do play it. And I, have a go. Because it is really, really good for the amount that it's going for right now. I think for me, the reason I really like it, I, I could... Yeah. Give or take the combat, whatever. Um, but it's um, it's, it's stuff when I mean Kai gets put in danger a couple of times, right. and you really feel for it. You really like I've got to get there. I've got to get there. She's gonna die. She's gonna die. And there's so few games that actually do that. Really engage you to the point of like oh, I've got to rescue this person because most of them are just like yeah I've got to get from A to B and really do I care if she dies or not. Right. So it's, if a game can do that, then I'm you know I'm all for looking over some of its its quirks in favour of it. You know a, a good story. Get lost. Hmm. Maybe I'll hit your weak point for massive damage. Monkey Peaches. Huh? The password. It's Monkey Peaches. Thanks. Lee, now is your chance to plug every single website you've ever worked for. Oh, my gosh. Well, Gamasutra.com for uh, industry business news analysis and commentary. My blog is sexyvideogameland.blogspot.com where we do some more informal Dialogue, fun stuff, discussions, musings, ponderings, and uh, stuff about games rather than the game industry generally. Um, yeah, that's those are my main projects right now. I do a monthly um, every month at Kotaku. If you search for my name on the site, you should be able to find the columns I have done. And uh, I appreciate everyone's readership and support, and I appreciate you guys for inviting me on because I had a fun time. Excellent. You have been a fantastic guest. You I would love def- to come again sometime. Yeah, if you need you <laughs> I'm thinking of getting a specific guy on I know who really, really likes Mass Effect. You know who I'm talking about, <laughs> Hawks. Uh, just to basically put you two in a room and go, so, uh, Mass Effect, discuss. Well, as long as he doesn't want to have, like, a fa- like, you know, everyone has, everyone's entitled to be a, a fan of whatever they want, even if they cannot substantiate it with logic. Um, ah, no, no, he is a mature to- gentleman, definitely. Yeah, he sure, he sure, respect sure. your viewpoint, I'm sure. Cool. Okay. So, <laughs> till That's next good. week, we till have been <laughs> the Digital Cowboys. I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Tony Atkins. Oh, I'm Lee Alexander. Thanks for having me as a guest. You can check out regular articles on our blog at www.digitalcowboys.libsyn.com, including one I wrote this week on women in games. Contact us via digitalcowboys at googlemail.com. Subscribe to our Twitter feed or go on iTunes and give us a rating. And we will catch you next week. Happy trails. Happy trails.